Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I hope you're doing well today. I just got done with my interview with Dr. Jen Oliverio, a trumpet teacher at Oakland University and principal cornetist with the Fountain City Brass Band. Jen is awesome. She's a friend of mine. I've known her for a long time. Just a wonderfully uh, genuine person who uh, is an incredible trumpet player. So uh, and cornet player, as we'll discuss in the episode. So I'm looking forward to uh, presenting this. We talked about her backstory. We talked a little bit about um, Brass Band itself and the value of it. We talked about some of the struggles she's had uh, getting uh, the job in Oakland and just some of the rejection she faced. We also talked about um, her CD that's coming out, so stick around for that. And then just at the very end, we talked a little bit about some of the struggles she's had in terms of you know, trying to sift through her identities as a mom and as a player and as a teacher and kind of where does all of that go. So definitely things that I think a lot of people can relate to and and I'm very excited for you to hear it. Before we get into that, I just have two, well, actually three things to share with you. Number one, if you haven't checked it out, uh, you can check out the Gold Method app that I've developed at the link in the description. It's just the the practice organizational tools I use to organize my practice so that I feel like I can get the most amount out of it and it's efficient and it's effective. You can use code GOLD21 when you subscribe for a free month. I just would like people to check it out, try it out, see how you feel. No pressure to subscribe past that point, um, but I think it's worth uh, checking out and I wanted to make that available for people to do. The second thing is, is do not forget to stick around to the end of the episode to hear the Mastering Engineer Brandon Yoakum's secret message. Uh, he's been leaving these great little uh, ideas or funny little anecdotes, and I'll make sure you check that out. And then finally, I want to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar with them, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. It's been over a year now since the COVID-19 pandemic shut everything down, and we're still feeling the effects to this day. While it is possible to move about with a little more safety these days, it's still a good idea to be as safe as possible. In order to be able to serve their customers while acknowledging the need for safety, Houghton Horns has expanded their policies to include a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories. I've mentioned before that they have free in-person virtual equipment consultations to help you make the right choice. So if you pair that with multiple easy financing options when you do decide which instrument is right for you, terms and conditions apply, it's clear that Houghton Horns is making it much easier to test drive and purchase the best equipment during our uncertain times. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and this morning, uh, I'm with Jen, Dr. Jen Oliverio, a very good friend of mine. She's been very patient with me as I have tried to uh, get my thoughts together <laughs> this morning. Um, Jen teaches trumpet at Oakland University. She is a member, the principal cornetist of the Fountain City Brass Band. 
um, you know, mom to Ben, husband to, excuse me, wife to Patrick. And, um, yeah, Jen and I have known each other for a long time. I've had both her and Patrick out to sub with Alabama a few times, and um, it's just always been a great experience. I'm excited for you all to get Jen's perspective on things because she's just been putting her head down, doing the work, and you know she's got stuff to show for it that she's very proud of now. And so I'm excited to not only see what that is, but to see if she can give us some encouragement along the way. She also loves the cornet very deeply, and I'm not a huge fan of the cornet, so I'm hoping she can say some words that might convince me that it's worth my time. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I'm excited to have you. Thank you so much for giving me your, your, some of your morning this morning, Jen. I appreciate it, Ryan. I'm really thrilled to be here. I think it's going to be an awesome podcast today. Yeah, well, hopefully I can keep it together long enough to, to make that happen. So, well, we always start with just getting your backstory, so... Why don't you take us back as far back as we need to know, but probably the double bass side of things is probably where we should start. <laughs> That's what everyone wants to know yeah. about generally. Well, I didn't know that story. I didn't know that. I listened to Karen's uh, episode with you. That's the first time I had heard that. So maybe that far back is a good place to start. Sounds good. So uh, the story that Ryan's referring to is, um, you know, every young musician goes through a time where they have to figure out what instrument they're most drawn towards. And uh, this is post-recorder in my lifetime. And uh, we went through um, some band instruments and some string instruments and my heart fell on the double bass and my mom said no. She <laughs> said, you can't be in marching band and that won't fit in my minivan. So trumpet it was and it was a good decision, I think overall for me um, to, to kind of take forward because that's what I ended up making my career around. So thanks mom, shout out to you, Michelle. Um, <laughs> And then from there, you know, growing deep love of the trumpet and of music making. And um, I ended up doing my undergraduate degree in music education and performance at Ithaca College. I then went to the University of Arkansas, definitely an interesting transition, culture shock from um, New York to Arkansas for my master's degree in trumpet performance. That's where you my, met Patrick, right? That is where I met yeah. Patrick. Yeah, it was actually kind of funny when I... um. The, the first time that I met him in person, I went to this concert and I didn't realize this was going to be a really fancy concert. Um, so I showed up in jeans and a t-shirt and everyone else is like, like dressed up in like suits and stuff. And so, so I was like very underprepared and probably pretty underwhelming uh, as a person to meet. But you know what? It worked out. Patrick didn't run too far. He seems pretty chill, though, too. So I'm sure that didn't He's... bother him too much. He's pretty okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, he was playing in the concert. So mm. yeah, it all worked out really well. And then um, I moved to Kansas City to do my DMA in trumpet performance. And I did um, a certificate in higher education teaching while I was there. Started teaching at Missouri Western uh, as an adjunct professor and, and taught a whole bunch of different classes. And then um, this past year, I won a job at Oakland University. So I started teaching there in the fall of 2020. Yeah, and we met in Kansas City, in the Fountain City Brass Band. Mm -hmm. um, I had been playing since 2013. I remember very, we should just talk a little bit about Brass Band, because when you were when you were talking about Brass Band on Karen's episode, I was thinking about my first time playing. Mm -hmm. And I played this piece, I don't even remember, Masquerades maybe? Oh, God. <laughs> and a piece called Albion. But I remember Masquerades playing it. And I had never played music like that before. And it was, you know, all over the place. You know how hard it, the, the pieces can be, especially the test pieces. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I remember, you know, I walked in thinking I knew what I was doing, right? I walked uh -huh. in thinking 
you know, I, I like, I know what's going on. <laughs> and I didn't. And I remember asking Ryan Sharp, the the E flat cornet player in the band. I was like, he's a very good friend of mine too. I was like, Ryan, am I supposed to, am I supposed to be playing all of these notes? And he's like, well, you should try. <laughs> and I was like, to me, it was like, how is this possible? Like, why would I, is this real? Like, is this real music? But apparently it is real music that you're supposed to play and that people do play. And it sounds amazing when, especially, you know, when, when Fountain City really gets going and you hear some of the other bands that are, you know, in the world that are at the top. So uh, I'm curious for you. I'm, I've actually formulated a question while I tell, told that story. You know, you are at a school where brass band is a component of what you do. Mm-hmm. And I've played in brass ensembles before, you know, and that's a very similar experience. So what do you think? What are the pros and cons, do you think, of a student being in a brass band versus a brass ensemble versus other chamber opportunities? We'll start with the the pros because I can think of a lot of them and I can think of less cons. So I'm just curious, like, what things are you afforded with a brass band experience as a student? Well, I think one thing to consider is that each of those experiences is going to offer something substantial to the students um, ownership of their instrument and their musicianship. So um, specifically for brass banding, um, generally when I'm asked about it, I talk about how I've never played um, louder, softer, more musically or more technically (laughs) in brass banding. And people are like, how is that possible? And uh, because the variety of the music, yes, there's very specific stylistic things that you hear when you play in a brass band, but also it has a lot of the same qualities that the most difficult solo works or orchestral pieces have. So you might have, um, you know, really difficult double tonguing things, really uh, challenging finger exercises. And so I think from that perspective, it really benefits your students. They get a wide variety of experiences and it's a a great challenge for them in all of those, those categories. Uh, What do you think about the, like the blend differences between a brass band and maybe a concert band? I mean, going from you're playing in a section with brass and other woodwinds to, you have all of the conical bore instruments, you know, like, do you think that just what are your thoughts on the differences between blending and stuff? Cause I think it's a pretty important part of brass band. Yeah. I think it's a different set of colors that you're painting with. Um, and everything feels very like warm and connected from section to section. And so I really like that quality and, and there's a distinct purpose for each specific color or each, uh, timbre when you're playing in brass banding. Um, There's also a lot of like different functional parts in the cornet section. So knowing what role you have in the seat that you're, you're sitting in is really important for contributing in the way that you're meant to for the group sound. Yeah. So kind of putting those two together, one thing I've enjoyed about brass banding is it's some of the hardest music that you play, but you're not like the star, you know, you're, you still have this blending element of, I have to play this insanely difficult thing sitting right next to someone who's playing the same difficult thing. And we have to sound like one. And I think that's a very unique challenge that the real, the reality of being in in a field of music is generally, unless you get some sort of principal job somewhere doing your thing, which you still have to blend, you're probably playing some sort of section thing. So to be able to hone both of these things in a unique way, I think is something brass band offers that very few other things do. I would definitely agree. And I think it's probably the closest I ever feel to playing as like a section string player where, you know, your contributions contribute to the whole musical sound, but I'm not as important as I, you know, as I might feel in another ensemble. I don't have the same uh, exposure as an individual player that I might in a different ensemble. Yeah. 
So for you specifically, you've played a lot of different positions, I know, in the in the band. So what's the difference between playing something in the section and playing principal cornet, even though the music is other than the big solos, the music is very similar. Do you feel a different level of pressure? Do you feel is it about the same? What's your experience shifting around like that? It's definitely more pressure playing <laughs> principal cornet, especially in those competition settings. Um you know, I appreciate the competitions deeply because I think they make me a better musician and um, it's a great way to contribute to the constantly evolving ecosystem of music that we have. But um, as a, like a bottom third cornet player, just kind of honking out low notes and feeling pretty safe down there, that's a it's a very different vibe. Um, I'm happy to sit in any spot in the ensemble because the sense of community in the group is what's most important. So, you know, regardless of whether I'm playing principal cornet on um, Brussels Requiem or if I'm playing bottom third cornet on Riverdance, which was my f- one of the first things I played in the group, you know, I feel like the importance of each of those positions is, is you know, it's still important. It's still valuable. Sorry, it's just way too many memories, uh, way too many performances of Riverdance in my life. <laughs> Yeah, the first performance I ever did was Riverdance. I was playing bottom third. And uh, I remember I was asked to play relatively close to the performance date. And they're like, yeah, we're memorizing the whole second half. (laughs) And for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, um, the whole section plays the entire melody for like almost the entire end of the piece. And so I was like, you you want me to do what with this brain? I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. If Lee is listening to this, (laughs) sorry. No, it's you're right. I mean, the community aspect of it is really what draws you in. I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't. I, there's no, to my knowledge, there's no brass bands in the U.S. that you can do and make a full time living or anything like that. So, generally speaking, you're doing it because you love the music and you love the people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just an opinion question. You know, it's just your opinion. I don't. I'm not asking you to assert that this is the way it should be, but do you think more places should have brass ensembles or do you feel like that, you know, it's like if you have, sorry, brass bands, do you feel like if places have brass ensembles, that that's fine. If they have a brass band, that's fine. Or do you feel like brass banding should become more of a thing because it just offers those unique opportunities? Well, you're asking a brass bander if there should be more brass bands. I'm going to say yes, Ryan, um, because there are a lot of, opportunities for instruments that don't have that constant push towards being and trying new things and and playing more difficult music. And so for your tuba section, you know, I conducted the youth brass band in Fountain City for a long time. And uh, some of the instruments, you know, I noticed in the tuba section or in some of the baritone sections, like they're playing music they would not have touched for a really long time, if ever, on those instruments. And it's, it's so heartwarming and valuable to see the level of growth that they have. Um, And it's a a great supplement to their high school programs. It's not something we're obviously not looking to replace the experiences that they have in their high school or middle school programs, but it's meant to work in conjunction with those and, um, and just kind of build really uh, well-rounded young musicians. So as someone who is very obsessed with practicing and how that works, the technical demands of brass band music can mm-hmm. often be far exceed what somebody is capable of doing. Even people who are like very developed as players. How do we balance that in your opinion? Like how do we, it's not, I mean, the obvious answer is to learn how to practice the music. So if we put that aside, like how do we balance, you know, 
the fact that we want to establish good habits with the need. This is basically a bigger question in general about your thoughts about balancing things of ensemble music of any kind that may be asking us to do more than we can do and still trying to establish good habits on our instruments. Because if we only do things we fail at, it's going to be very difficult to establish good habits. And this is something I've 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 picked up from a lot of people that, you know, they spend so much time on their ensemble music, let's say in this case, brass band music, because it's just hard and they, they, they're they worried about being able to do it and sound good, that there's not either a lot of time, a lot of face, you know, left or a lot of energy left over for like, here's the work that I need to do to make me better. So maybe you can just talk about it from your experience of you being a brass bander and principal cornet. Like, how do you, how do you balance these things? Do you have a specific amount of time you allot to certain amounts of your playing or like what for you is the balance so you can make sure you're covering all of your bases and getting quality out of it? Sure. It depends on what season of playing I'm in. So there are specific competition seasons that um, the level of difficulty for my music is much more challenging. And so I have to a lot more time and more thought into how I format my practice sessions to make sure that it's as effective as possible. Um, so for example, the last time we did NABBA, which was a while ago at this point, there were a couple of solos that were... Um, pretty challenging. Um, and even when I got to the point where I was like, okay, I have it pretty close to tempo. There still felt like there was a pretty strong wall between where I could physically play the excerpt and anything beyond that tempo wise. So it was, uh, it took a lot of thoughtful practice, um, you know, metronome work, really slowing it down. Um, and then it also was a combination of, you know, that technical work, but figuring out how to play it in the moment so that it sounds convincing and believable there. To me, there's a difference. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm practicing technical things, it sounds like I'm practicing technique, but kind of moving it into something that's functional and usable as a, as a musical statement is, uh, you know, another consideration to make when you're practicing. How do you do that? Well, a lot of recording, um, listening and, um, to me, the less I think about, like when I'm in the moment, the less I have to think about what's on the page and the more I can think about what I want to say, the better the product is going to be. All right. You opened this can of worms. You did this. All right. I, I apologize, <laughs> but I'm excited too. Can it okay. be both? How, like, I totally agree with you, right? I totally agree. And and in my opinion, it's completely acceptable to almost put these things in like categories of like, I'm working on the technique, now I'm working on the music. And I think it's because to some degree, it's 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 less efficient to try to do it all at the same time. That's my opinion right now. And I think also not as it, not only is it less efficient, but like it's hard. Like I think our brains can only focus on like one thing at a time. And so if you're trying to pay attention to the technical things you're establishing, and are you playing musically, and is it you know loud enough? You know what I mean? Is it projected enough? Like I think it can be difficult to manage those variables. So the the question I have for you, because I feel like although we could talk about specific structure, what's really important is understanding when you're ready to move on to the possible next step. That's really the question that I mm -hmm. think would be answered. So let's say if you start with a slow practice, trying to make sure you just at least, you know, know your way around the the licks and stuff like that. How do you how do you mental what are you looking for in your playing to know that you're ready to possibly stop thinking about technique as much, begin really recording yourself and start to make the musical presentation? What are you looking for? Um, well, I, I view it like everything has a bunch of like dials so I can like dial up the intensity of the sound or I can dial up, you know, the variety in the excerpt that I'm playing or the volume in the excerpt I'm playing when I'm practicing something that's like triple forte, I'm not going to practice it every single time at 60 at triple forte. If it's something that has to be at 170, that's not really an efficient use of my energy. 
Um, and so I want to be able to get to that point where I use everything very thoughtfully. So, um, to me, it's when I, I feel like, I don't know, to me, like technically I have to be able to play what's on the page first before I turn up the other dials. So whether that's the intensity of sound, the volume, the, um, expression, um, those are the things that I, I kind of hold off on until like my fingers are on lock. My articulation is very comfortable and it's connected to everything else that I'm doing. And then I can make some of those other moves. Um, so that's probably how I would prioritize that in this setting. I know we're just speaking generally and every specific example would have its own. I, I totally understand that. But I think mm-hmm. generalities, can, I, you know, in my opinion, generalities cover like 90% of most of what we're going to deal with. You know what I mean? So it's worth yeah. kind of trying to dig in, I think. The other, then the other part of this too is like, do you, do you try to be like, I'm going to work this up technically from like whatever I start at to a hundred percent and then switch? Or do you feel like you find a level of comfort around 80, 85, you know I mean? Like a little bit under tempo where you feel comfortable enough that you're like, I got this, I'm ready to sort of shift into. And then the other question that I'm really interested in because I'm struggling with this myself is when you sort of shift into I'm recording myself trying to present it, do you do you go back? Do you go back to that slower kind of practice? Do you have a way that you think about when you want to incorporate that cuz I'm trying to do that. I'm 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 working up a list of excerpts right now for a YouTube video I'm going to I'm going to record soon and I'm finding it what I'm finding tr- trouble with is when I warm up for my regular practice sessions, my warm up just elides into my practice. Like I, you know, I have like a clear delineation of when that stops and starts, but like part of my practice, my work still feels like a warm up because it's low impact. So when I'm trying to decide it's time for me to stop warming up and I'm ready to run the list, I kind of don't know where that line is because I don't. So that's kind of what I'm asking is like when I start running things, I realize oh, I still need to do some of that slow stuff and like basically what's if you if you do that what's your approach to knowing when you need more of that slow stuff when you just need to keep running it to get comfortable with it do you have you know a relationship with how you would go about doing that yeah i again case by case basis but as much as i want this to be like a linear thing where i just go directly to the top like there you know i'm like ah i don't have to go back and re-iron out any of my tempos or any of my fingerings that's not the case for me um i've slept since then for most of my practice sessions so there's a lot of overlap with my tempo so i might get to like 80 today and start at 72 the next day and and use that as a really great way to reinforce the positive things that i'm doing at some of those middle tempos um and then as far as moving into um you know like your higher levels of musicianship from a technical approach, I would say a lot of times it's when I I don't need to read the music off the page quite so much anymore. Mm. And what I mean by that is like the articulations or the pitches or the rhythms. uh, Once I get beyond reading those off the page, I can, I don't have to think about that level quite as quite so much anymore. And I can really focus on musical expression and where, where and what I want to do with that. For you, that is that stage just, like to me, unfortunately, that stage is just like throwing hours at it. You know, like I I mean, maybe some people have some methods and that's what I'm kind of curious if you have like the approach that you do is sort of a method to get to that point or is it just a result of spending a lot of time with the material? I would say um, because my practice sessions are more flexible now uh, as a mom, I don't uh, I can't just be like I'm practicing from two to four 
as regularly as I would have when it was just me that I had to worry about. So I do a lot of off trumpet practicing. So that might be listening to the recordings so that when I'm playing through them, I'm not second guessing the pitches that I'm playing. Really, I have an understanding of exactly what it should sound like. Um, and then I do a lot of like fingering and articulation stuff. So I can be watching Coco Melon, my son's favorite TV show, and also have, you know, one of my brass band pieces out and be, you know, doing the articulations and fingerings along Um, And it's not disrupting his day. It's helping me in a pretty significant way so that it cuts down on the amount of face time I need to spend on that specific excerpt. So, yeah, um, I I think this is a fascinating. I'm glad that you said that because this is something I'm curious about, too. I haven't really dived into this very much. Mm -hmm. So when you hear there's people in the fitness industry that will be like, it takes hard work to get where you want to go, which I totally agree with. Right. But like when you think about that from a fitness perspective, sometimes that just means more like you're just working out more or you're lifting heavier weight you know what i mean which has its merits but on an instrument especially an instrument like the trumpet i don't think more equals sort of quote working harder mm-hmm. and so i've been really trying to think about well i mean there are certain things that we need to do to be able to be successful and that would that would be encompassed in you know working hard and so Maybe if you want to expand upon what you just sort of just spoke about, because obviously that's part of working hard, but you, you don't, you're not holding the instrument and playing. So then you're just acknowledging that practicing doesn't always have to be physically playing the instrument, which I would totally agree with now. So I'm kind of curious for you, like what, how would you define something like practice? It doesn't have to be a, like a easy, you know, one sentence thing, but how would you, what are you trying to accomplish with the idea of practice if it's not just specifically playing your instrument? I think there's a lot of different levels of growth that we as musicians need to take on. It's not just me playing the trumpet that I need to grow at. My ear needs to be better in order to evolve my musicianship. My technique needs to be better. Um, My understanding of music as a whole needs to be better, but also the pieces that I work on. And there are ways to practice those things that don't necessarily mean I'm just practicing my trumpet in order to do those things. So listening to recordings gives me a better understanding of what the capabilities of the piece I'm working on are, especially when you're listening to someone that's spent a significant of time, you know, building their craft. They're a true musician or a true artist. I learned so much from hearing those performers and those players and how they approach this piece that might be different than how I approach it or how someone, you know, someone else that recorded it might approach it. So um, yeah, to me, it doesn't have to be physically on the trumpet in order to make growth as a musician. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the reason I asked is I, th- I think I had this misconception and I would imagine other people would identify. I've just had the misconception that practicing is just spending time in the practice room. And sometimes I don't think we think about wh- like why, like what is the purpose of what, like when we leave the room, what like how would we determine that we were successful in the efforts that we made? And I don't, I don't think that question is asked often enough because I feel like if we even just ask that question, it would dramatically affect how we spent our time in there. And so you talking about, you know, growth in these different areas of your instrument, like I totally agree with you. And I think that's, I don't want to say it's lost because I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to pretend I know, you know, a lot more than whatever. But I think the idea is, is that, because we don't think about that, we just, it, it's so much easier just to go through the motions rather than thinking critically about why am I playing this exercise? Like, what's the best way to learn this thing? And it might be away from the instrument. So I'm glad that, I mean, if you have more to expand upon, that's fine. If not, we can move on. But 
I think it's a cool perspective to think about it from a place of growth. Well, I think it's interesting too, because I think that the off trumpet practice that I do is less quantifiable. So when I'm playing the trumpet and I hear myself working on an excerpt or in a technical exercise that works on double tonguing, you know, I can see visibly and hear when I go from 140 to 160. That's a very clear, easy to understand concept. But, you know, if I say, oh, because I listened to these recordings or because I, you know, I already visualized what I want this phrase to sound like, I have more spin and direction in my sound. Well, that's not quite as clear cut when you look on the page, but it's equally as valuable to your your ability to play your instrument and to be a musician. Yeah, no, I think it's a great perspective. Um, so we can shift now. I think I've fully explored that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious about um, Oakland. I'm curious about... I mean, you talked a little bit in Karen's episode about what it was like over the pandemic trying to like make things happen, but like it just things didn't happen the way you would have optimally liked them to because of this pandemic we're going through. So let's talk about this year. Let's talk about are you able to shift back into those types of things? Like, are you basically the question is, are you trying to just say, well, now we can do, quote, the original plan or is what you learned last year? Has that affected what you hope to accomplish for this year? Just like where do you hope to move forward um, this year in light of your first year being so kind of all over the place? Yeah, I would definitely say last year informed my approach to this year. It still won't be normal. I don't think a lot of things will be, quote, normal for a while. But uh, I've learned a lot about what the students are like at Oakland. They're wonderful. They're absolutely fantastic and super supportive of our goals and excited to see the potential for the trumpet studio and, and where we can take all of this. So that's extremely positive. I'm very fortunate to come into that environment. Um, but I think that this year will probably be a more intense extension of last year. Um, so I have the ability to do more things. I have a more stable footing at the university and in the music department. Um, but my goals are, you know, still constantly moving forward for the studio and for myself. And I'm excited to see what potential that has. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's struggling in way, different ways than probably, quote, normal struggles would be, right? Mm -hmm. How do you how do you encourage people who, you know, are like, I have no ensembles to play for? And so uh, thus I have no motivation and, and, and then moving forward into, well, we might start having some ensembles to play in and struggles still might exist. Like it's not that all of a sudden the things that we were struggling with being fixed or being alleviated won't make it so we won't struggle. Like what's, what's your opinion on your role in encouraging people on things that are outside of like, here's how we play the trumpet. Cause I know everyone takes a bit of a different stance on how involved that they get. I don't think anyone's going to say, I don't care about that at all. But I think mm -hmm. some people will draw a line and it's like anything past this line, you should go talk to somebody who's like much more qualified. You know what I mean? In terms of like something like therapy. This is I haven't really asked mo many people this. I asked mostly just Anderson this, Michael Anderson. But I'm curious, like for you, especially coming into a new space where you're all getting to know each other in the exact same framework of COVID. Like, how do you feel that you have sort of fallen into encouraging your students in these types of uh, difficulties? Well, I think one of the things that I'm grateful for and that I'm excited about is the level of creativity my students have surrounding their own playing. I think that's something that we need as musicians is a, a you know, some like a, an approach, a creative approach to musicianship so that we can see beautiful and positive 
things moving forward. Um, and I don't think that means just following one or two trajectories. I think that means filling the gaps in between those things, being entrepreneurial and thinking about um, what they want to contribute and what gets them excited about music. And that's not always the same things that as, you know, as their peers or as their colleagues. Um, so that's one thing I, I've had them consider is what gets you excited about music still? Is it playing with other people? Is it recording and multi-tracking yourself? Is it listening to music? Is it conducting? Are you interested in arranging or composing? What aspect really, you know, kind of lights a spark in your heart for music? And um, what are you going to do with that information? How are you going to pull that into your, either your career path or the time that you spend um, kind of putting yourself out there as a creative? Do you, have you, I mean, you don't have to say who, you can just say yes or no. Have you had like specific conversations with your students like that? I have had students come to me with projects that they're excited about and interested in. And um, I'm always happy to try to try to help see, you know, how can we build this into what you're doing currently and, and what potential does it have either for, you know, a career or something creative that, you know, just kind of gets you excited about music. I think it has taken a little bit of, it's been a roller coaster for a lot of musicians and it's, it's tough to feel the same level of, um, not commitment, but uh, motivation. There we go. To feel the same level of motivation when there's a lot of unknowns for them. And what does that mean? You know, what kind of community are they coming out of their degrees into? So, yeah, I don't, I don't ask for any reason other than, um, I, I mean, the question was kind of phrased in a weird way, but the reason I ask is because I think it's, it's, I feel like having the space to be able to be like, I'm interested in this other thing. And then your teacher's like, well, how do we incorporate that in sort of uh, thinking in more of an entrepreneurial way is, I mean, now doing the things that I do, I think is a very valuable discussion to have when you're younger. The mm -hmm. idea that like, yes, you could follow the path of becoming an ensemble player of some sort or a teacher. And if that's what you desire, that's great. But, um, you know, I think that those are viewed. What I think can sometimes happen in music is we say, here's these two or three paths that everybody follows in music. And so the fact that you're even willing to like say, well, we don't know what this will be. But like, if it gets you excited, let's like, let's entertain the idea because you, you know, there's, you can turn almost anything into anything. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very cool. It's, that's why I asked that question if people have actually come to you, because I know you can have that approach, but sometimes students still might feel afraid or they still might not come to you. So it's very cool to me that you like actually have a relationship where students like are, and you're trying to basically, you're building a, you know, helping build a career versus like, or at least oh, a thought process of how would I move forward in a way that's meaningful to me versus the way that's meaningful to the way the world sees music careers, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that that's ever shifting. And so if you don't support and prepare your students for that in some capacity, um, it can be kind of limiting, uh, especially if it's something they're passionate about and they're excited about. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I think there is some value in being, I don't know, this is a hard thing for me to say. I think there is some value in being, you know, singularly minded about how you approach. That's very much how I am. And I don't think it's necessarily paid off in the way that I thought it would pay off when I was younger, but it has certainly allowed me to like exhaust certain things and say like, all right, I took that as far as it could go and I'm good with that. Like I can move on to another thing, you know? So I think there's value in, in both sides of things, but I just think it's very important that people are willing to say like, 
well, here's this interesting idea and that there's, you know, some support system around, like, let's explore that instead of like, well, there's no opportunity for that. So like, don't waste your time. Yeah. And I think it depends on the students too. Some of my students are very much, I would like to be a high school band director and this is what I need support with. And absolutely, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure they get the experiences and um, the growth that they want as a musician and as a, an educator while I'm working with them. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about uh, in your interview with Karen is she kept saying Oakland was your dream job. And I did not realize like if that, you know, if that's how you feel about it, I had, I didn't realize sort of that that was your relationship with the job. I just thought you applied for the job and you got it. And it's a good fit. So do you feel it's your dream job? Do you have aspirations to move to a different, you know what I mean? To like continue quote climbing the ladder, or do you feel like you've actually found the spot that you would want to, you could imagine spending your career because being this young, as you know, like it's, it's hard to imagine. I'm, this is like, it versus what we've been conditioned to like, we just got to keep moving and keep climbing as high as we possibly can. So I'm curious when she said dream job, I was like, huh, should ask her about that to see if that's your actual feeling or if it's just sort of how she was presenting it because she just means it's a, you're happy with the opportunity. Yeah. I think, um, being a young mom, that's changed my perspective pretty significantly. And so, um, I remember being in my DMA or being like a young professional uh, trumpet player and, uh, and thinking about like, what's next, what's next for me professionally. And um, to be in a place at a university that supports the brass banding and all of the professional things that I'm interested in. I recorded a CD recently. Um, I'm doing some really exciting presentations specifically in with a focus area on cornet playing and brass band, that's a pretty unique perspective and space to be in, in academia in the United States. And so um, I don't know that I would get that at very many other places. And this, you know, this is applying for academic positions is a very difficult place to be in. I've prior to this sent out mid twenties for applications and only heard back from about three universities. And so to be where I am with the support level I have and, you know, the resources for something I'm, I'm deeply passionate about, I, I can't imagine being anywhere else right now. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. Uh, okay. So I have a, I have a line of questioning now I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. I want to ask this question and I want to get, I want you to convince me that cornet is solid and then we'll talk about your CD. All right. So. This is sort of the, you just described, this is a good place to do it. You just described that you're in the mid twenties. And I mean, I don't really want to talk about it in depth, but I know at least one of those applications that you sent in was like a pretty horrible experience around, um, you know, what the, what the sort of how you came out, you know, how mm -hmm. you were treated and I, it can be a exhausting process. Right. And I'm not like, mm -hmm. I'm not interested at all in taking orchestral auditions ever again. Like I, the idea of doing that. And so then I think to myself, you know, how did we put ourselves through it in the first place? But like, that's what you do. You have to, you know, that's just the thing you do. So I'm curious for you um, to be able to put that many applications in and feel like you're going to keep moving forward and then be able to be this grateful. There's a certainly a worldview attached to being able to just continue moving forward and feel positive about it. So do you mind just sharing? I'm going to leave it pretty open-ended. Do you mind just sharing kind of how you view the process of applying and being, you know, having either nobody calling back or being rejected and still, and then now feeling like you're in your dream job, you know, in a spot where you're, and it's like, oh, I'm almost glad all of these certain jobs didn't work out because I am where I am now. I'm just curious what your perspective is on that. 
I think it's an interesting perspective to be in a place where you're applying for these positions um, because you don't know who else is applying. You don't know necessarily 100% what their experience level is or their connection to the position or the people that are doing the search. And so um, it's not as clear cut as we all, all want to think, you know, um, just because I have my DMA does not mean I'm going to get a position or just because I have teaching experience doesn't mean I'm going to get a position. Um or it one immediately after graduating with my degree. Um, so for me, a lot of that rejection early, I expected it. You know, you're like, I'm like, oh, I'm in the first year of my DMA with zero teaching experience. This is not surprising that I uh, haven't gotten a call back. But at some point, you know, you're looking at your paperwork and you're like, oh, I have those things that I was told that I needed in order to get a job and it's still not happening. So it takes a little, a little bit of reassessment what exactly is missing? Um, what can I, what experiences or what things can I do to try to improve my, um, the way my paperwork looks or my, my CV or my resume or uh, cover letter and all of that stuff. And that's a big thing. And also just visibility, um, you know, having really good media content and, um, having a, a strong voice as a musician and something to really contribute to the, um, the atmosphere of professionals at the university that you're applying for and seeing that the university you're applying for is a good fit for you as a person too. So how do you mitigate frustration? Like what you just described was like growth mindset, right? Like, uh, well, every, every, you know, not getting the, not getting these jobs means it's an opportunity to look at what's not working and try to just continually grow. But the flip side of that is just frustration and, and feeling like, well, I'm, I'm doing everything right and nothing is working. You know, and so how do you, I mean, is it something you grew up with? Is it something that you feel like you sort of grew into through experiences in your life? Or, you know, like how do you have the growth mindset? How do you feel like you have leaned towards the growth mindset side of things of when things aren't working, it's just an opportunity to grow versus like, I'm doing all the right things and I'm just frustrated. Well, I mean, the closer I got to actually getting a position, the closer I felt like I was to giving up on it too. Um just because like when you get to that point, the last six months before I got this position, I was, um, I at least got a call back or made the semifinals or finals for three positions out of the, in that time frame four that I applied for because I was pregnant at the time. Um, and you know, it, there, there's a certain amount of rejection when you're coming up to a big life change where you're like, is it, can I just do something else and still support my family? And so I was about at that point, I almost didn't submit my application to Oakland because it was due three weeks after my son was born. And I, yeah, I didn't know what that would hold for me. If I made it to the final round, would I be able to play a recital three months after my son was born? I mean, and thanks to you, I was, you know, I had a lot of support and, and you really helped me through that process and I deeply appreciate it. Um, but there, there was some concern and, and, um, some conflicting feelings towards the end of that process for me, it was not clear cut and it was not pretty and it was emotional a lot of the time. And, um, you know, when you're on the other side of things and you do have a position, it's easy to look back and not, not think as much in depth about the, you know, the, the not fun stuff, but <laughs> it's, it's definitely stuff. still there. Um, it definitely happened. And, you know, going back, would I do everything exactly the same? Um, maybe no, maybe yes. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's okay if you're second guessing and it's okay if it doesn't, you know, if you're, 
you're considering other options, but it's also okay to continue pushing through and seeing exactly what your potential is for that. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, do you mind if we talk about, I mean, I would, I would be interested in hearing you talk about the program that I wrote, uh, that I shared with you because that one was like V one, you know what I mean? Like version (laughs) one, I hadn't done this hardly at all. And I don't even remember. I don't even think I was thinking about it from like a perspective of you had just had Ben and you know what I mean? I, I feel like you just were somebody that was supportive of me. And I was like, Oh, I wonder if she'd be interested in this, you know? Um, but I remember you saying that it was really helpful to have to help you just get back into shape and being able to to play after having not played when Ben was born. And the reason I'm curious for your thoughts is because it really it really points to the value of these programs that I've started to write as it has a little mm-hmm. bit less to do with like you will become the most amazing this or that and and more to do with like it's just a structured way to make sure you're covering all of your bases, especially from a fundamentals perspective, which is what you were working on. Um, and then obviously there's ways we, you know, talked about the repertoire itself, but I'm just curious mm-hmm. for your thoughts. Cause that was so early on. I feel like I've grown significantly since then, but you know, for you at that time, you don't have to go crazy or anything, but just what was the value of having something like that to be able to help prepare you for this, uh, audition? Well, uh, so I'm going to back up a little bit. Before I had been, um, playing did not feel good. It felt very bad, actually, the last month of me playing. Um, my response was not very great, and my endurance was not very great. And, I mean, rightfully so. I was very, very, very pregnant. Um, but after I had him, um, you know, I submitted my application. I was like, I have no idea how far this is going to go. And then a month later, I got an uh, audition, or uh, like an interview, a, a Zoom interview. And I was like, oh that means I'm to the next round. And I, I know what comes after that, but you know, after that zoom interview is a live interview. And so I was like, if I make it past the zoom interview and go into the live round, I have to play a recital of pieces. And it's not that I haven't been playing my instrument, but I've been maintaining, not pushing forward. And, um, I want to make sure that it's something that I'm truly and genuinely successful at. Uh, and so I had a little bit of like, a, I need a, a safe environment to fail. And that's, that's kind of what you provided me. You provided me structure and accountability, but also a safe space where if I was like, I sound really bad. What do you think I should do? Um, I had, I had the latitude to be vulnerable and that's what I needed. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, cause I feel like I shared it with you thinking it would just be like a nice thing. I had no idea at that time I could connect it to like actually like having an impact in someone's like, you know, I didn't really or... know what to do. I hadn't gone through to be, I, I've been very fortunate in my playing career. It's been pretty consistent. I've been, I've been pretty consistent as a player. I haven't gone through very many embouchure changes or any major barriers as a player. And so when I had my son, I was like, yikes, this doesn't feel good. And I don't a hundred percent know how to, how to trek forward because it doesn't feel like me playing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I just was curious, you know, for your thoughts, because to me, I, I'm just seeing the the value and the benefit is just being that it's not necessarily saying it's the best or whatever. It's just like, here's a way to make, yeah, make sure you're covering all your bases. Here's a way to make sure that we're not like forgetting to do this over here or that we're spending way too much time doing this other thing that we're like sort of stressed about because we can't do it or whatever. It's just 
kind of helps with that kind of thing, at least for me and my practice. And I have lots of different goals, right? I have lots of different things I'm trying to work up. So it even just helps from like managing all the different things that I got to do. It was good too, because uh, when you're in a vulnerable playing place, and I'm not sure, you know, people out there listening, you know, it's it's sometimes kind of garbagey to play a brass instrument. Um, so when you're in that place where you're playing vulnerably, it's easy to overlook the places uh, where you need to grow as a player in order to be really successful because you want to feel good about yourself. You want to feel good about your playing. And so you play the things that are closest to you. Um, so it was good because it balanced all of that out. It was like, no, you can't just ignore this section or the, the high notes or the technique that you don't want to play because you don't want to feel bad about yourself. It, it didn't allow for that. Um, but it was just like a really like balanced and um, consistent approach to learning, relearning some of that repertoire. Yeah. Um, okay. You spent a lot of time on the cornet. We're talking about now, you know, we were just talking about mm -hmm. repertoire. So I think this is a good, good segue. You know, I've spent a very little amount of time on the cornet. And so that's my bias, right? <laughs> my bias mm -hmm. is I don't really play it. So take everything with I'm about to say with, with a grain of salt, but you know, it's the thing that's hard for me about the cornet is to really, truly do it. I would have to abandon what I do, you know, to really like become a stylistically appropriate cornet player. And maybe you could think, maybe it could be, I'm going to shift back and forth, but it feels that to me, cornet playing and orchestral trumpet playing don't really gel in terms of <laughs> approach. And so I'm just curious, so I can't really, you know, I can't talk about cornet from a place of like, this is the benefits and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm very curious for you, someone who spends so much more time, Chris Larios, he and I talk about this all the time too, Chris is in the presence on Marine Band. He used to be Fountain City, principal in Fountain City when we were younger. Like, so he has a similar thing. He spent so much time playing the cornet. He like spends all his time playing the cornet, you know? So I'm kind of curious mm -hmm. for you, what do you feel like um, the cornet offers that you maybe can't get on the trumpet or maybe just what does the cornet offer that you feel like is beneficial for trumpet playing? Or maybe it's just cornet only and we should all forget about the trumpet. I'm just curious for your thoughts. Well, I, okay. I love playing the cornet. Um, and when I pick up an instrument, that's the sound that I want to sound like. So I enjoy playing it a lot. And I think that it has like such a level of intimacy to the sound and it, it can really um, express things that I feel like are a little bit clunky on trumpet where it's just, um, I have an analogy that I use with some of my students. And for me, when I play the trumpet, it's like, uh, I, it's like a knob that I turn on and off. So it's like, I'm playing trumpet versus I'm playing cornet. And there's a very distinct difference in a, a different place for each of those styles. Um, but when I'm in trumpet mode, to me, it's more like a firework. It's very present and it's like everyone can hear it. It's a very like proud and present sound. And that's not to say there isn't some overlap between these styles or these approaches. And for me, when I play cornet, it's like a sparkler that I'm holding. It's really special and it's intimate and warm and close to me as a person and as a player. And so uh, I, I try to embody those differences when I'm playing each of those instruments. I'm not always successful. Um, it's not a hundred percent to say that I haven't played with an inappropriate vibrato style uh, on occasion on the trumpet. <laughs> um, but um, to me that they're, they're, you know, I just like, I pick up my cornet and this is, this is the player that I am with that instrument in my hands. Yeah. Like my, like I said, my bias is like, I feel like nobody can hear me when I play the cornet. You know what I mean? Like I'm so, I love used, that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to the, like the resonance, the different kind of resonance on the trumpet. And it's very true for me. I feel like I'm a trumpet player playing a cornet. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I understand the sound concept and I feel like I can do it, but I haven't like fully become like a cornet player. So I could actually sound, you know, great on it. And so do you, I assume, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you. Do you feel like you're a trumpet player playing a cornet? Do you feel like you're a cornet player playing a trumpet? Or do you feel like you've actually been able to separate the two after having spent so much time and you feel like you just are able to more own each one as you're doing it? For the most part, I'm able to own each one. Um, I would say that my bias leans towards towards cornet at this point in my playing. Um, but I still like I grew up playing the trumpet. I played, you know, since I was in fourth grade because that was the choice above double bass mom. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what I started with. That that was the sound concept in my head from right from the very beginning. And so um because recently I've spent more time trying to catch up my cornet sound and my cornet approach. I would say that that's, that's my general lean currently, but I, I mean, I feel perfectly fine playing trumpet whenever sure. I need to. No, I was just, just curious, you know, cause like I said, for me, it's very much trumpet player playing cornet. Yeah. If I have a stand of all of my instruments out and I'm demonstrating in a lesson on something that doesn't matter stylistically, um, you know, like a warm up or something like that, I will pick up a cornet before I pick up the trumpet. Mm. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Well, do you, are you one of those people that think all students should start on cornet? Cause it's like this Brian Appleby Weinberg stuff here. You know, he thinks like it would be beneficial for people to start on cornet because of the sound concept, easier to produce sound that kind con- not easier, but it's just a different, you know I mean? That I feel like the mouthpiece shape and stuff like that makes it so it's less aggressive and you know, stuff like that. Do you agree with that? Or do you think it doesn't matter? It's not something I've given considerable thought to, so I, I would have to kind of sit and think with it and, and do some research on it. But um, my almost two-year-old son has a pea cornet in his room rather than a pea trumpet, so we'll <laughs> let that say what it says. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing that they make that. Wow. Oh, yeah, I was equally surprised. How's he doing with it? <sighs> this is going to be really embarrassing. Um, Every time he picks up the trumpet, he plays a pedal tone. So I think he's going to be a euphonium player. Oh, Don't no. tell Lee. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. How is he doing with... I'm imagining he's fine with it, but like, did Ben ever struggle with you guys playing at home? Mm, I mean, oh, so when we first... Part of the struggle for me putting that recital on when he was so young for my interview is that um, I practiced into a... Uh, shush mute every night that's how i practice so when i got to the actual performance i was like dang i sound good because i had no idea what i was really going to sound like (laughs) it was very limited out of the mute playing experience for me at that time so he when he was really young we had to be very careful about when we played with and without a mute just because it's he, he can't really see what's going on doesn't understand it um now i practice exclusively at work pretty much unless i'm playing into a mute or doing off trumpet practice or something like that so um it's not that it he views it as a competition he will be louder than your trumpet and that means screaming and causing a little bit of a ruckus i can believe that yeah trying to avoid that at all costs (laughs) (laughs) okay here's another interesting question related Mm -hmm. to being a mom um Sure. Same thing with being a dad, but just being a parent and 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 playing an instrument. You know, you almost are forced to become more efficient with your time, right? Oh, yeah. Because like you just don't have as much of it, but you still gotta get as much or more done. So do you feel like A, do you feel like you have become more efficient out of necessity? And B, do you feel like you look back and wish you were this efficient with your time previously? Or do you feel like I was like it's fine that I practiced that way? 
and it's fine that I practice this way or, you know what I'm saying? Or do you wish that you kind of had some of those habits before? Yeah, I uh, will definitely have to practice smarter now. Um, just the nature of parenting and having my first full-time position, um, which is fantastic, but I don't do as much playing for myself. I do a lot of demonstrating and I do a lot of, um, of, of playing with my students, but not quite so much of, um, well, I, apart from the CD work, um, not quite as much of, you know, leisure practice. I don't know how to put it any other way, but, um, playing for my own sake rather than, um, for the purpose of, of demonstrating or something like that. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, taken a different turn than I expected prior to having a child. Like you, you know, that having a kid is going to impact your life. You just don't know, like in every single facet of your life or how it affects every single facet of your life. So practicing for me, I just have to be more creative about how and when and what resources I use. So yeah, I wish that I had some of that in my practicing previous, but also I think I was working on bigger concepts when I was a younger player. So refining those big concepts sometimes took more time. And and I, at this point in my career, I'm grateful that I spent the time that I did as a younger player, kind of um, putting all of that into place. Yeah. I do wish I was more efficient when I was younger. You know, mm -hmm. I think, I think, you know, to some extent you almost feel like you got lucky <laughs> that like you didn't get hurt or that, you just came out the other side, you know, I, I don't really feel like I want to, you know, rely on that same kind of luck almost, you know, mm -hmm. but I think for sure, I wish I would have practiced more efficiently from the perspective of, I just more efficiency kind of begets more quality, right? Like if you're going to practice less, like the quality generally has to be higher so that you're constantly ingraining, at least hoping to ingrain good habits. And so I think that that's a process that sort of exponentially grows on itself. Mm -hmm. So almost from a place of who knows how I would play right now, if I had all of the exponential growth from when I was like, you know, 18, I, whether I would have actually done it or not is another thing, but. Yeah, I was, well, I still am a little bit stubborn. So it just kind of depends <laughs> on how, how much of that I took into my actual practice and how much I was like, I don't need that. I'm fine. Yeah, for sure. We all that way a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, let's talk about your CD because I know that, uh, I mean, I have a, as someone who records themselves pretty regularly and as someone who obviously plays the trumpet, um, I'm just curious about this process for you. Um, so I'd like to talk about the recording process itself and then just the mm -hmm. CD, um, what's on it and kind of what to expect for the process itself. What I'm, what I've learned is like, if you understand how the recording, like how recording works, it can dra dramatically affect. I remember hearing you talking about some of the stress that you experienced with the recording process, but almost from a place of like you kind of didn't necessarily know like how it would all be put together. And if you did, it might have been a different experience. So I'm kind of curious if you want to speak to that and then how not that you would have done something different, but like if you could have done something different and you could have had more, you know, what I'm saying like what would you have done to allow yourself to be a little bit more at ease, I suppose, with recording a full CD? I think it's an interesting dynamic when your husband is the um, music editor and doing all of the stuff. It's not that I don't trust his expertise, but also um, I'm viewing it from like a, I'm used to running things and you get what you get. And I'm not used to the ins and outs of like how you put together different takes and um, 
how that process can really look for the player. Um, and so I think there's a lot of like inefficiency just on my part where I was like, I didn't get that whole take of like 700 measures and you don't have to do that. Um, there, you know, there are really clear cut ways to, to build that together. It's like putting a quilt together. You're not going to just sew entire yards of fabric together and that's how you build a quilt. So yeah, I would say, um, just from like an efficiency standpoint, trusting the editing process and, and knowing that, um, everyone in that room had my best interest at heart, um, as a player would probably have helped. And, um, yeah, I was just kind of stubborn. There were some points where I was like, I, I didn't get this whole thing as a take. Um, and it's like lar- very large sections of the piece. And I could have trusted that the people that were my ears behind the scenes knew what they were talking about. Cause they do, they absolutely do. Um, but I'm also very type a in those circumstances. So yeah, as you should be. It's your playing, you know? Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that can really help with that, you know, maybe somebody doesn't feel like right now they're able or ready to record a full CD, but, you know, getting some experience of recording yourself and seeing what it's like to put something together, I think can get you some of that perspective now. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like I'm grateful for the pandemic in that way that I started recording myself a lot more and trying to put together recordings and understanding that, like, if you're in a dry room, you can almost do anything you want to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, we were not in a dry room. Right. So, um, but yeah, I completely uh, agree with what you're saying there. Um, one of the difficulties is that I haven't had a live, I had one live performance where I played uh, hallelujah chorus on piccolo outside on an outdoor stage with a mask on. And that was my outdoor perform or my only live performance that I've had since March, 2020. Um, so when I went into the recording session, um, I had recorded two, uh, two re- recitals previous and that had been it for any sort of performing recording, anything like that, uh, like in a formal setting. So I I guess I was the mindset. It was an exhausting mindset to be in for that long when you're kind of out of practice. Yeah. And, um, yeah. No, I mean, it was tough. I remember recording my CD. I don't remember. It's five days, Mm -hmm. maybe like 10 to five, but we took breaks, you know? And I just remember it was just exhausting to play it, to try to play at that level for that long. Like your brain hurt, you know, my brain hurt from just focusing that much. That's not, I mean, I don't even think you can really prepare for that. You know, like you're not going to actually practice that way. You're going to just save it for the CD recording. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you agree. I, I've, I really hold this belief that being able to play an instrument at a high level is directly related to your ability to focus at a high level. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. So ours was a slightly shorter, uh, we had three days, um, two hours each day. Um, and so it was a, shorter process and um yeah and it was all new music so it was interesting from that perspective too because there aren't a lot of the steps that I take to do practice like listening to recordings of people that I look up to like you don't have that I listen to a bunch of mini files yeah. not overly inspiring from a like a compositional standpoint because I really enjoyed the composers but mini trumpet just doesn't do it for me definitely not Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You know, when you're premiering new pieces, it, you just probably just do the best you can. And your interpretation, whatever you come up with, will be the way it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure there's an amount of freedom in that. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's an amount of like, I'm putting this down in print. So that can be stressful from like, you know, well, I end up liking this, you know, a year or two years, three years later. But I'm sure there's. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
even listening back, it feels raw sometimes to listen back to your playing and be like, I did the dumb stuff when I was playing that. That is not as beautiful or as nuanced as I'm capable of. And I'm angry at myself for that. I mean, I recorded my CD in 2016 and then Mm -hmm. we released it, you know, early this year. It's like not even (laughs) close to the same player I was back then, you know? (laughs) Yep. A hundred percent. So I feel you for sure. Um, What's on the CD? Um, You you can go piece by piece and talk about it or or you can just say kind of what to expect. But uh, I'd be curious for people to know what's on it and what and, you know, why they should check it out. I know it's all new music, so that's number one reason to check it out. You won't have heard this anywhere else. But what other what else? Yeah, so I wanted to um, kind of in a tangible way contribute to cornet and flugelhorn solo literature, um, just because it's a a corner of the you know music space that I enjoy spending a lot of my time. So uh, I've got three pieces that are specifically for flugelhorn, two pieces that are for the cornet, and then one piece that kind of crosses both boundaries and has both instruments. Um, all new works. Um, and a wide variety of styles, but all highly successful. I would say I was really pleased with how everything came out, um, from the, uh, you know, from the composition standpoint, I really enjoyed all of the pieces that I I got in. I think it's a pretty like interestingly balanced program. So cool. Yeah. When does it come out? Do you know? It should be here. Uh, it should be arriving around Labor Day. Um, so soon from from today um we're currently getting the uh the next set of master tracks in so i'll be sending it off to be um produced as a cd very soon so knowing you and patrick the way that i do what's next because i'm sure you're not just gonna sit and be like cool we made a cd that's it like what do you what kinds of things are you looking forward to doing uh next yeah, of course, we can't just sit around and not have a plan. Um, Patrick uh, is planning some um, personal recordings of his own for this coming, like this next summer. Um, I am working on refining a presentation called uh, British Brass Band Cornet Playing for the American Trumpet Player. So it's I should a fitting... probably go to that. You're, you're welcome to it. <laughs> it will be at ITG this coming year. Oh, good for you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So um, I figured, you know, I'm I wasn't born into the brass banding movement in the UK formally, but um, I've spent a lot of time considering how to transition as someone who listened to a lot of American trumpet playing and still does and and sits in that world and, and tries to cross over into the brass banding movement as well. And so, you know, I've given a lot of thought to how I I try to to justify the styles for both of those instruments in a convincing way. Yeah, that's awesome. You're doing it. At ITG. That's a big deal. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Yeah. Very uh, honored that they they chose that presentation. I remember I did a recital at ITG after I did the Ellsworth Smith thing, and mm-hmm. my, it, like whatever room I was in, the uh, there I had to do my recital. Let's say at like eleven a.m. Mm-hmm. and at ten fifty eight, the room was full, and I was like, I gotta get in there and like warm up and stuff. And then I was, what's going on? So I opened up the door, and Tom Hooten was giving a clinic. And I was like, I don't think anybody's going to care about my, res-. you know what I mean? Like no one's leaving oh, yeah. this room so I can get in there. I'm prepared for that reality too. <laughs> if there's like three people there and one of them's my husband, it's fine. No, nah, I'm fine. sure there'd be a lot more than that, but yeah, it's just funny to me. Um, it's just, yeah, it's funny because there were a lot of, I mean, there were, there were people at my recital. It's just like, 
ITG is such a whirlwind of a thing, you know what I mean? So I, I hope it, I hope, and I'm sure it will be a really great experience overall for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to yeah. it. Um, before we close here, I'm just curious, we can, you, you can kind of speak to what you spoke about before in terms of the struggles, although, although you kind of covered that. I'm just curious, like, you just seem to have such a, I mean, this has been so good for me because as well as I feel like I know you rarely have, we just sat down and I just asked you questions for over an hour, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you just have seemingly, and I understand that people who have a positive out or optimistic outlook, it's not necessarily that it's that way a hundred percent of the time. I totally understand that, but you seem to have a pretty positive forward thinking growth mindset, you know, type way of seeing things. And often I find that that has come because of some, again, either you grew up that way and it was instilled or there's something that happened or a group of things that happened that sort of shifted your perspective. And it's usually related to adversity or struggle that sort of really caused you to think about things. And so I'm curious for you to just pontificate on where you think that this overall mindset comes from. Um, again, it could be again, it could be from parents and stuff, but maybe it's from just some sort of struggle. Because I think, to me, I think it's the way to see the world, right? I think it's like mm. <clears throat> bad things and, and struggle and adversity will happen to everybody. And um, some things are way out of our control, but aspects of our suffering and our adversity, like you said, I can change my CV. I can... I can try to get more social, you know, aspects of it are under our control. And so even having the the desire to put your nose to the grindstone and figure that out, where do you think that came from? Well, I've always had a lot of support from my family and all of that stuff, but I think um, kind of landing in this place of gratitude recently, um, you know, the last year has been really difficult and following my pregnancy, I, I went through some significant mental health struggles. And um, so kind of landing in the place that I'm at now, Um, I think is just kind of overcoming some of that and realizing and recognizing the support that I really do have both here and uh, kind of with my family. Um, You don't have to get specific, but when you say, look, I, I, I guess the easiest way for me to say is when I hear people say that they have mental health uh, struggles, like to me, I don't always understand. And I don't think you have to get super deep. Um, but I always just wonder like what that means basically. Cause I mm-hmm. think it can, I'm starting to understand. I think it can encompass more than just like, I'm sad. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think some, t- or I'm depressed, or I think sometimes I have a very limited view of what that can mean, but really something like the Simone Biles thing, when I listened to her speak about what she was going through, like, I don't think, I don't think she's like, depressed you know i don't think that's her mental health struggle in that instance i think there's a ton of pressure on her to succeed at a very high level from a lot of places and so i think it opened my eyes a little bit to like this might be a bigger picture than what my narrow view of that is and so again i don't think you have to go super deep but i think if there are people who might be struggling with a similar thing kind of like maybe what did it look like and what do you what kind of perspective do you feel like helped you move through that just in case somebody else might be struggling with a similar thing Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of things that contribute to that pretty significantly. I think, um, becoming a mom and being a musician, um, and not knowing what that looked like, um, prior to, uh, kind of getting this position creates some level of uncertainty and like, who am I? Like, what am I? 
to a lot of people. Um, so, you know, when you become a parent, you're, you don't have the same flexibility to do what you want when you want. Um, especially as a new mom, like you're, you need to be there all the time. And so I, I struggled, like, you know, I love being a musician. I love playing. Um, how is this being a mom is the best thing I've ever done in my whole life, but how, how is that going to impact the, um, kind of the, the self attachment to being a musician? And what do I do with that information? And then, you know, going through as much kind of um, like not failure, but having as many um, rejections as I had in the academic job market, I was like, how am I going to support my family when no one wants me to work for them at this point? And, you know, if I can't be a musician um, or can't be a college educator and I've worked so long and so hard for this, like what, where does that leave me? What does that mean that um, I have to contribute and what's my title in not that I need like a, a super esteemed title, but what does that actually mean to me as a person? Um, and so I struggled with that and, and finding meaning and self-value and a lot of those things. So um, I think um, kind of working through that and almost detaching myself in a way from like, I can still be a, a valuable person to society and to my family and to my students without only being a musician has been a valuable thing for me. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think I would be hard pressed to imagine every every musician has either not figured out the identity question or they've gone through it, you know, mm -hmm. or or they're going through it. I guess, you know, the same thing happened to me with Indy when I when I lost that job. I was like, the very first question I asked was, "Who am I if I'm not principal trumpet in the Indianapolis Symphony?" Right? Like, I totally get it, and I think it's. It's just something that you would love to possibly save you either yourself or other people from, but I don't believe that anymore because I feel like it's, it was very refining and there's a lot of like empowerment that came from that discussion with myself. Would you have, would you feel similarly that like going through it was incredibly hard, but like the, you know, who you've grown into is a much stronger person as a result of solidifying like some of those questions. I think it's given me more space to create what I want. Um, instead of like only being a college educator or only be a musician, um, there's so much more to offer than either of those two titles can have under their umbrella. So, um, yeah, I, I would definitely think that it, it takes some of the pressure off and, um, gives you more space to be you, whatever that might mean. No, I, th I'm, I agree wholeheartedly. It's so, it's so interesting how that, how, those types of things develop, you know, because for me, it was mm. like through losing tenure for you, like the just the balancing of the multiple different identities kind of caused you to um, ask, you know, which of these is do I have to say one of these is most important? You know what I mean? Like, I totally can totally understand that. So I'm not a parent in the same way as like I had a young kid and I have to be there 100% of the time. My kids are a little bit more self-sufficient. So like I have the opposite problem of like if I'm not careful, it's easy to spend zero time. You know, like, because they are mm -hmm. self-sufficient right now. They can just go do whatever they want. So for me, trying to purposefully make sure that, like, I'm, you know, even something as simple as I'm just going to go out there and instead of making lunch and coming back to my office and eating it, just eating it out there with them. Like, mm -hmm. even something that simple is, like, that's 10 more minutes that I got with them that if I just got in my own world of, like, I got to go do my own thing, I would have missed out on. So... Yeah, it's an interesting struggle, as you've described. I would agree mm -hmm. 100% with that. And 
I think even the bond that I've made with Kathleen and I imagine the bond you've made with Patrick as a result of trying to balance that stuff, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't trade that for the world. No, I think it's a whole another level of understanding of each other as people. Uh, Cause I mean, you're, you're in it with each other, you know, all of those struggles, all of the, the frustrating days, the days where you don't feel like you can do the things that you need or want to do for yourself. Um, there's someone standing right next to you that, that can empathize with each of those moments. Yeah. And I mean, just as sort of like a mushy, big picture thing to me, I think that's like what marriage is supposed to be. Like marriage is supposed to show us like what that kind of love looks like. Where like, regardless of what's going on, like you're there, you know? Oh yeah. And it's a totally different level of love when you're, um, I don't know. You're, you're just responsible for you. Like, obviously you're responsible for yourself, but together, um, like, I mean, we both, like, we look at Ben and like, he's our responsibility jointly together all the time. And, um, I love it and it's exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, you're saying it's like, it's like, no matter what's happening, like being able to serve each other, being able to be there for each other. I mean, of course we all have, you know, instances of, you know, being stressed or whatever. And like, even the love, you know, covering that. And, you know, I, I just think it's, that's like, to me, what marriage is supposed to be. And I, personally, I can, I can only speak for myself. Like I've grown significantly when trying to take that attitude of like, regardless of what's happening, I have to, I have to, I have to show her love because that's like what I am as her husband. I show my kids love I'm trying to, trying to demonstrate to my kids. Like that's just that level of responsibility of like, they will learn what proper things are based on how I show them. Like, like that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so like, oh, I constantly think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just adds that level that you just that you couldn't have known, like you were saying beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I uh, totally agree with you. I think it's uh, overwhelming, but also very refining. If you know we're up for the challenge, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. Jen, this is awesome. I'm really thankful that we got to do this. Um, if people are interested in checking out. Uh, the stuff that you're doing in terms of the CD or your, uh, you know, what you're putting out on social media, checking out Oakland, checking out brass banding in general, how would people get in touch with you so that they can find out where to do that? Um, I've got an Instagram page, a Facebook page. Uh, Oakland has both of those things as well. Um, you can find my email on the Oakland university school of music page. Um, and I'm, always looking forward to connecting with other musicians and people that have stuff in common. So feel free to reach out if you have any questions or thoughts. Yeah. Um, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that at that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoy this episode had any feelings at all whatsoever, consider doing a rating and a review on iTunes. Also, don't forget to share this on social media. So other people can find the episode as well. Jen, Thank you for being on my show. This is awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to thank Brandon Workham. Brandon Workham for his... I like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. And we'll see you next time. Hello, hello, 
hello, that's not spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's secret message is that I have a stuffy nose, and I don't feel good. And I'm here doing this secret message anyway, because I love you guys. And I love doing secret messages. And even if I'm feeling bad, and sometimes I don't want to do things... <clears throat> well, I just think about things that I love, and it really helps me get through doing things. So, there you go. And remember, 